The first reading is from Psalm 87. He has founded his city on the holy mountain. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the other dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are said of you, city of God. I will record Rahab and Babylon among those who acknowledge me. Philistia too, and Tyre, along with Cush, and will say, this one was born in Zion. Indeed, of Zion it will be said, this one and that one were born in her, and the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord will write in the register of the peoples, this one was born in Zion. As they make music, they will sing, all my fountains are in you. Mark 7, 24 to 37. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demons gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There, some people brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk. And they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took him aside, away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's eyes. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. He looked up to heaven with a deep sigh and said, Ephatha, which means be opened. At this, the man's ears were opened, his tongue was loosened, and he began, began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. This is the word 
of the Lord. Again, Nathan Newman comes to uh, open the word for us this morning. I want to pray for him as he comes to speak to us. Father in heaven, would you anoint your servant Nathan now, giving him the words that he needs to convey the truth of your word. And would you open our hearts, giving us ears that are unstopped, that we might hear deep in our hearts those things that you desire for your people today. This we pray in the name of our Master and our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. It is a blessing to be back with you this morning, church family. As Paul said to the church in Ephesus, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, especially my neighbors, your pastor and his family, and we do not cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in our prayers. What a witness your church has been to our little neighborhood, the 1800 block of Independence Avenue. A few people called me a few weeks ago. They saw the Chung's back door open, and there were people coming and going. And so they said, we should go check it out. So me and a buddy went and uh, checked it out. It was just one of you watering their plants and caring for them while they were away. But it was an incredible window and opportunity where I was able to share with our neighbors about this beloved, authentic community that they saw on display. That it was their small group who was loving them in this amazing way. And they were astonished. They were astonished by that type of community and that type of love. So may God continue to bless your beloved congregation. And thank you again to Pastor Andrew and the elders for having me uh, come, welcoming me to the pulpit. Okay, here's our plan this morning. We are going to enjoy our way through these two stories and then learn two things that they teach us. So first we see Jesus is on the move. If you've got your finger in your Bible, look down at verse 24. See, Jesus arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So just a little bit of context. Jesus has been in Galilee, right? Feeding thousands, walking on water, generally schooling the religious elite, blowing everyone's mind with their power. But they are rejecting him. And he's tired. So he takes a turn toward Tyre, which is modern-day Lebanon, and we see an incredible moment in redemptive history. Tyre was not kind to God's people. You may remember the story of Elijah, the prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel. He was the prophet who fought Jezebel, right? And that great story of sacrifices where Jezebel was trying to turn Israel to worship Baal. She was King Ahab's wife. You can read about that story in 1 Kings 16. There's a wonderful children's book that we have called The God Contest. Del, you remember that story? It captures beautifully this story about how God is fighting for his people. Jezebel nearly leads the kingdom to worship her pagan God, but that's where Jesus is going. Tyre, Jezebel's home 
country. Leaving the holy land, he's bound for pagan territory. An unclean and unholy people, the other side of the tracks, you could say. But this is no accident. Because a thousand years earlier, these brothers, these sons of Korah would write about this in a song, which we now know as the 87th Psalm. Preachers, they were singers, chanters, piano players we even saw earlier. A beautiful reminder that these psalms that you've been studying throughout the summer are the backdrop to the entire New Testament. Even as we talked about, if you were here a couple uh, Sundays ago when we preached on Psalm 23, that beautiful reminder that even in our valley of the shadow of death, where there's suffering, that God promises to be with his people. So that when we see the, the introduction of who Jesus is in Matthew's first chapter, they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, these Psalms are the backdrop to the New Testament. And these first three verses would have been familiar as they were sung over their congregation. God's holy city of Zion, where he will dwell and establish his people and they will be reigning with him. But then verse 4 would have been completely astonishing and shocking to them as they, they heard among those who know me are, are Rahab, which is Egypt, and Babylon, and Philistia, and, and Tyre, and Cush, Israelites included, but these are God's enemies. Among those who know me are Tyre? What? What is God doing? What are these sons writing about in this psalm? But Jesus is on the move, and he is bringing all people into his holy kingdom, every geography, every ethnicity, every gender. These citizens, their new birth certificates would no longer read their country of origin, but a son or daughter of Zion. This is good news. This is Jesus. Jesus is teaching his disciples. That is his primary audience here because he is, he is preparing them for his departure and they don't yet get it. And so he goes to Tyre to teach them in this moment that God's kingdom is bigger than they think. It is expansive. It is bigger than our imagination because one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. A people from every tribe and tongue and nation. John writes about this people in Revelation 5 verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign over the earth. God's plan of salvation from Genesis to Revelation is glorious. It's astonishing to see what he is up to when you look at the big picture. And this story in Mark, coming back into Mark's gospel and our story, would have equally been astonishing to the original audience. Not only who Mark was writing to, the church in Rome, but also his disciples as well, who were experiencing this 
story firsthand. All right, we're not even out of the first half of the first verse. Amen? All right, so let's keep moving. This is good stuff. Second half of verse 24, Jesus entered a house, and he didn't want anyone to know, yet he couldn't be hidden. I love, I love these little hints of Jesus' humanity throughout the Gospels. We don't exactly know why Jesus was wanting to get away, but he was probably tired. It would make sense to us. He's trying to put up his feet a little bit and recharge. He doesn't do any teaching, for example, in this. He, he's just away for a moment. It's okay to be away for a moment. And we see after he'd just gotten through this long discussion with the Pharisees that he's tired. But he can't escape the paparazzi because Mark's favorite word, verse 25, immediately, a woman whose little daughter has an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. An anxious mother falls down at the feet of Jesus. And her daughter has been possessed by a demon, we're told. And the effect of such torment was real. Self-harm, bodies and minds out of control. We see that on display. And I wonder if demon possession, this talk sounds strange to you. It should, okay? Like Netflix's favorite 80s show is not called Totally Normal Things. All right, these are strange, strange things that are happening in the gospel. But verse 26, the woman was a Gentile. We're told, we're, we're introduced, told a little bit more about her biography. She was a Gentile. She was a Syrophoenician by birth, which is this region. And she begged Jesus to cast the demon out of her daughter. So this traditionally marginalized person, she's a woman, she's a Syrophoenician, she's from the wrong part of town, a Gentile, unclean, the wrong gender, at least three strikes against her in this story. And she is desperate. Desperate, but she has come to the only person who is able to do what she is asking. So you imagine her state. A parent will do anything. How do you picture Jesus responding in this moment? How do you picture Jesus responding? Not how I would expect the next verse. So let's read verse 27 again. Let the children be fed first. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. This is Jesus' response to this woman. Wait, what? We expect Jesus, gentle and lowly, tender and sweet, to respond to this woman with tenderness and move towards her. But instead, he calls her a dog. Now, this is typically the moment where I sweep in and I encourage you and tell you, you know, that Greek word, it really didn't mean dog. It just meant a kind and sweet puppy that was beloved in that community. But I'm sorry, I cannot, I cannot give you that encouragement. This was not an encouraging phrase for Jesus to, to use. It sounds like Jesus is saying, you are not worthy of my time. Get in line, you dog. So 
how do we, how do we respond? How do we, how do we consider Jesus' harsh words to this woman? Number one word that we learn in seminary, context, context, context. All right, let's understand this scene. Look at verse 29. Whenever you don't understand the start of the story, it's good to go to the end, work your way backwards. All right, so let's, verse 29. For this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. So we see where Jesus is headed. Jesus is headed towards a miracle and towards healing, towards restoration of this woman and her family with a word. Verse 30, the woman went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So what is her statement of faith? What is the, what is the insult that led to the miracle? What is her response? The answer, of course, is in verse 28, which we skipped over. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. A beautiful statement of faith. So the first thing this passage teaches us is that God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. Jesus calls her to a dog and look at the woman's masterful reply. Yes, Lord, I'm a dog. Amen. Her statement of faith is her unworthiness. It's not her pedigree, her background, anything that she brings to the table. She didn't try to defend herself or control the situation. She simply acknowledges her sin in humility and says, yes, Lord, it's true. And her boldness is beautiful and it's instructive for us. Jesus commends her for her faith. Most commentators agree, of course, that Jesus is simply testing her faith. And she is passed with flying colors. Of course, his disciples have yet to pass that test. But they see this woman who is marginalized, who is an outcast in society, passing with flying colors. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She understood that even a crumb of God's grace was sufficient for her salvation and for her daughter's healing. She said, I take your insult, Jesus, as a compliment. As the great theologian Jim Carrey said in Dumb and Dumber, so you're telling me there's a chance. (laughs) As the Lord said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Jesus' disciples don't yet get it, but they will soon. And the instruction for us is clear. We must come with this same posture of humility, this same posture of brokenness, especially in a town like D.C., Washington, where we are competent people. We can get the job done. We have the resources, the networks, the ability to achieve what we want and what we desire. We need that healing. We've got Johns Hopkins. We've got all the, all the resources that we need in the world to accomplish these things. 
But we don't come to the king's table with any right. This is not our table. This is the Lord's table. We come desperate for healing and for grace. And of course, the beauty of the gospel is that the crumbs are enough. The crumbs are enough, but God doesn't stop there. He prepares a feast for us, a feast in the presence of our enemies, as that that great Psalm 23 told us. A feast in heaven, a banquet that demonstrates not only his sufficiency, but his abundance as well. And she understood that. That is good news, that all we have to do this morning when we confess our sins before God is say, yes, Lord, this is me. This is all I bring, is empty hands to you that I cling. And so when shame or guilt creeps in this week, all you have to do is remind yourself that you're a dog. But even the crumbs are good enough for God's grace. And friends, the the crumbs of grace overwhelm the stain of sin. So let's pick up in our story, verse 31. We see this next part where Jesus is in the same region of Tyre. He went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis. And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. Again, Jesus is continuing his journey. He's just left the Pharisees. He's in Tyre. He's headed to another person who's been marginalized by society, a man who's both deaf and mute. In verse 33, taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers to his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. We see Jesus tenderly taking a man aside so as not to make a spectacle of this healing and touching him physically, touching him And looking up to heaven, he sighs, Ephatha, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue released so that he spoke plainly. It's an amazing miracle. No less amazing than the story before. Jesus is demonstrating his power to heal not only the spiritual realm, to heal a possessed girl, but to heal in the physical world as well. This is the Christ, the Messiah that was foretold by the prophet Isaiah who wrote, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped and the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. This is the might of the Lord, his power, his strength on display. So I want us to look at the second thing this passage teaches us is that God's grace is amazing. God's grace is sufficient and it's amazing. It's amazing to see God at work in these people's lives. He goes after the Syrophoenician woman. It was not just an accident that he is in Tyre. He is pursuing his people even when from the perspective of those around him, he is trying to get away. He is going after his people. He goes after the religious types. He goes after the heart of hearts. He goes after his enemies. And he turns them into his friends. And not only turns them into his friends, but he makes them heirs of that kingdom. He makes his, his, 
his enemies sons and daughters of the king. It is astonishing, everything that he's doing, and it is beautiful. Just as this woman teaches us that we bring nothing to the table, the same thing is true. This man teaches us that we don't bring anything to God. And again, that's the good news this morning. That we don't have to bring anything. However we came in this morning, that's how God desires us to to be. With open hands and worship to Him. Giving Him our worship. Giving Him the glory He he is due. Because again, that prophet Isaiah would tell us that all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags before a holy God. We are deaf and mute to the things of this world apart from Jesus reaching down and touching our hearts. It is only then that we can experience that power of transformation by the Spirit within us to love in this way. Because that's what Jesus is trying to do with his disciples is to show them, to demonstrate for them what is possible. That everything that they long for, everything that they are looking for in this political kingdom is already theirs in Christ Jesus. They don't have to strive for it or attain it. It is already theirs. They just have to look up and see who is amongst them. In verse 36 and in verse 37, Jesus charged them to tell no one But of course, the more he did this, the more they proclaimed it, and they were astonished beyond measure. He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. We don't honestly know why Jesus is telling his people, all right, let's keep this one on the DL for now. But we can understand and sense that there are some real practical implications for Jesus as his story is spreading as his popularity continues to grow and draw crowds. We know from the backdrop of this story that John the Baptist has been recently killed by Herod, so perhaps they're laying low. They're waiting for the right time in history. Nevertheless, the people were astonished. That's the point that we need to focus on here, is they were amazed by God's grace. Is this the Messiah that we'd hoped for? They ask themselves. And it's a great question for us to ask ourselves too. Are we amazed and astonished by God's grace like they were? Seeing these these miracles, these transformations, these healings. I know sometimes that we can, I, I can take God's grace for granted. To think of myself just a little bit. I'm worthy. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a decent person. But that's not what this is about. Nothing to the cross I bring, only to cross I cling. That great hymn, Rock of Ages. We don't bring anything, we cling to Jesus. But sometimes we live differently. We cling to other things. We cling to our bank accounts or to our status, our title, our whatever it is for us. We, we try to justify ourselves and our own 
righteousness, our own sin even. But that's the great paradox of the gospel. The late Tim Keller used to say, if you think you're well, you'll stay sick. If you think you can see, you'll stay blind. You deny the sin diagnosis, your spiritual tumor will only grow. So when Jesus responds seemingly harshly to his people, with severe mercy, like that woman, say, yes, Lord. This is what we bring. We bring nothing. Naked we come, helpless we look to you for grace. Holy Spirit, help us fly to the fountain of amazing grace that we find in Jesus. How will you respond? How do, how do we respond to the challenge Jesus gives? With faith and amazement or hard-heartedness? Still unconvinced of who he is and what he's done for us. Those are really the only options that we have when we hear these stories. When we see Jesus for who he is. To respond in faith and repentance. Or to reject this message. And the beauty of these two stories, and even a, a larger theme throughout Mark's Gospels, is that it is often the outsiders, those who are marginalized, who get it first. Mark 15, at the end of his Gospel, who is it that first confesses that Jesus truly was the Christ, the Son of God? The Roman centurion who's at the foot of the cross. Mark is writing this on purpose for us to understand God's ways. They're glorious. They're beyond our apprehension. The Pharisees are the ones who have hardened their hearts toward God. And it's the Gentile. It's the Roman centurion who understood and that's a, good, that's a good warning for any of us who would call ourselves Christians this morning as well to examine and re-examine our hearts before God as we are constantly called as followers of Jesus to repent and believe in the gospel. This is the call for us all. When Jesus sees the brokenness of the world he sighs, Ephatha. He groans for a creation that was marred by sin and the fall. Because that's not how the world was created. The world was created perfect, without sin, without blemish in creation. But just a few pages in, we see the results of Adam and Eve's sin, which we've inherited. But that's not the end of the story. Praise be to God, just a few verses later, we see God's promise. that There will be one who will come who will one day crush the head of the serpent once and for all through his death, conquer over death and sin. For all of those who believe in him, they will inherit eternal 
life. This is, of course, Jesus. He knew what it was going to cost. It would cost him his life. And as the people said, he is doing all things well. And in that final chapter, one day in the new heavens and the new earth, he will say, behold, I am making all things new. All things will not only be well, but they will be made new. And so until Jesus comes again, we have a privilege to remind one another, to continue as this community, to remind one another of God's grace, that it is sufficient and that it is amazing. Pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this woman's faith. We thank you for the beautiful demonstration that it is Lord, of her humility, her understanding of her own sin and status in this world apart from you. We thank you that you save people like her. We thank you that you save people like us. You save people who are marginalized, who are outcasts of society. You save outsiders, you save insiders. You're teaching us, your people, just as you were your disciples, who you are, your power over the spiritual realm, your power over the physical realm, that you are good, that you are glorious. Your ways are not our ways, O oh Lord, but we thank you when we get a glimpse, a window in to your amazing grace. We thank you for Jesus. Amen.